This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener, when you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or donate on www.diffusionradio.com. International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we revisit Bitcoin and the science of money. But first up, here's the news. Glucosamine for longer life. Are you taking glucosamine supplements to treat arthritis? Bad news, it doesn't work. But don't stop taking it, it might just keep you alive. Glucosamine is a compound present in the lubricating fluid in human joints. It's been sold as a health food supplement on the basis that somehow eating glucosamine will improve arthritis. The bad news is that research has shown that eating glucosamine doesn't help joint health and doesn't combat arthritis. The good news is that eating glucosamine has extended the lifespan of worms and now mice. So it might scale up to extending the life of humans. ABC reports that a team led by Michael Risto at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology fed glucosamine to planarium worms and found that they lived 5% longer. They next fed glucosamine to mice just under 2 years old, which is the equivalent of humans' at 65 years old. The mice live 10% longer, which would be the equivalent of 8 more years for a human. How does it work? The researchers found that once digested, the supplement prevents the breakdown of large sugar molecules into smaller ones, which replicates the effects of a diet that restricts intake of carbohydrates. However, just why the glucosamine is helping the mice live longer isn't understood yet, so more research is required after which the research can be done to find out if a similar effect is taking place in humans or not. Powdered alcohol. You could be forgiven for thinking powdered alcohol is just another hoax, especially given the recent water into wine miracle machine hoax. The miracle machine turned out to be selling not a device for turning water into wine, but a marketing device for getting people to buy wine to support a charity that provides clean water in the developing world. This, however, is not a hoax. The American company Lipsmark has gained permission from the US Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau to sell seven powdered alcohol cocktail mixes that you just mix with water. They call their product Palcohol. Palcohol was invented by Mark Phillips, who's written and broadcast extensively about wine in the USA. It turns out that the complex chemistry behind turning alcohol into a water-soluble powder was patented back in 1972. 
Alcohol can be absorbed by a sugar derivative called cyclodextrin. Its molecule has a ring shape that can take alcohol into the centre. The inside repels water, it's hydrophobic, while the outside is water-friendly or hydrophilic. This lets you dissolve substances in water that normally aren't soluble, by chemically getting them to sit in the ring. The cyclodextrins can absorb 60% of their own weight in alcohol. With the alcohol taken up in molecular capsules, the fluid can be handled as a powder and mixed with water. Technically, it's a form of nanotechnology. And if you didn't do this, the alcohol would just evaporate if you tried to dry it into a powder. The Annals of Improbable Research have found a New York Medical Journal article from 1899 that heralded B-in tablets. In 1999, a German energy drinks company, SubUX, launched an alcohol powder product in four different flavours. In 2007, students from Helicon Vocational Institute in the Netherlands tried to market powdered alcohol drinks as booze to go, to get around the drinking age limit in the Netherlands of 16. They mixed baking soda, citric acid and lime flavour with the powdered alcohol. The baking powder and citric acid made it fizzy when it was mixed with water. The drink had an alcohol content of 3%. They were going to sell it for $2 per packet to anyone, particularly those underage for drinking. Reuters reported that the Netherlands government said it wouldn't bother stopping them, but the product disappeared. In 2008, Pulver Spirits announced it would start selling alcohol-powdered drinks in the US with an alcohol content of 5%. In 2014, a German company hopes to market powdered beer as Instabeer. Cyclodextrins have uses outside of making powdered alcoholic drinks. Medicine that normally wouldn't dissolve in water or would break up too quickly on its own has been packaged inside cyclodextrins. The Febreze clothing deodorizer uses a cyclodextrin to entrap bad smell molecules. Cyclodextrins are also used to make low-fat foods. Subu appears to still be on sale online. Whether Instabeer and Palcohol succeed in being allowed to market, and whether there's really a demand, remains to be seen. Alcopops are regulated and still controversial, whereas alcohol inhalers never really caught on. Maybe drinkers are conservative. Solar power for rainy days. Researchers from MIT and Harvard University have developed a way to store the heat from the sun and then release it on command later when the sun isn't shining. They've designed photo-switching molecules in a liquid that change shape when they're heated and then stay in the new shape until they're triggered by a jolt of electricity or light. They give up their captured heat when triggered to heat a building or industrial ovens or for cooking. Right now, they're not efficient enough to boil water to run steam turbines and generate electricity, but that may come in future versions. The solar thermal fuel can be reused over and over again. The azobenzene photoswitching molecules are attached to carbon nanotubes. The molecules stick up from the nanotubes like teeth on a comb, which lets them intermesh and pack densely enough to be useful. The paper was published in the journal Nature Chemistry as Templated Assembly of Photoswitches Significantly Increases the Energy Storage Capacity of Solar Thermal Fuels. 
For a solar thermal fuel that's efficient enough to boil water with solar power at night, salt is the way to go. And for this we turn to Arizona, where the world's largest concentrated solar thermal power plant with storage came online last October. The 280 megawatt Solana power plant has six hours of storage in the form of molten salts. During the day, the concentrated sunlight from parabolic mirrors heats a working fluid of oil that transfers its heat to boil water and heat 125,000 metric tons of salt. The molten salt transfers its stored heat back to the oil at night, on demand, which then boils more water to generate electricity. On a smaller scale, the solar tower in Spain, Gemasolar, generates 20 megawatts and is able to continue generating for 15 hours after the sun sets. This means that the Gemasolar plant can generate power 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Bitcoin pays out. Tech AU reports that the first Bitcoin automatic teller machine has started dispensing money in the Westfield Sydney Central Plaza in the Pitt Street Mall. Bitcoin is the online currency that isn't backed by any bank or government. Bitcoin relies on people running their Bitcoin wallet software, which broadcasts any transactions over the internet to everyone else's wallet software. It's completely decentralized, and it's enjoying a boom. People are buying Bitcoin in exchange for the government-backed money that everyone else uses. And more and more merchants are accepting Bitcoin as payment. A pub in Woolloomooloo will sell you beer for fractions of a Bitcoin. Bitcoins are currently worth 529 Australian dollars each, up $400 from September 2013. If you've mined the cryptocurrency on your home computer, or on a special server farm, or a thumb drive with a Bitcoin-optimized CPU, or simply traded goods or services online with Bitcoin, you can now cash out with an ATM. The cash machine isn't friendly to people who value anonymity. The ATM demands that you open a trading account with the company ABA Technology, and that for this account, you must provide your phone number, personal identification number, and a palm print. ABA Technology plans to place more than 100 Bitcoin cash machines around Australia, if the first few prove successful. ABA bought the money machine from the American supplier Robocoin. You can tell the machine how many bitcoins you want to sell, and it goes online to an international exchange to sell them for you, and then instantly dispense the physical currency for the sale. Converting cash into bitcoins is just the reverse. The other side of the bitcoin boom is bitcoin mining. You can create new bitcoins by running software that cracks the SHA-256 code that all our online banking and shopping relies on. 
The faster you can make your computer crack the code, the faster you can make money before the Bitcoin exchange rate changes. By cracking the code, you're verifying the Bitcoin transactions. This interview first aired in September last year. At Dorkbot Sydney, I spoke to James Nichols, a mathematics graduate who's teamed up with a hardware friend and a marketing friend to sell hardware-accelerated Bitcoin mining machines. These are thumb drive computers optimised for making money. The me and some friends are doing this uh, project on hardware-accelerated uh, Bitcoin mining where we're using uh, sort of advanced specific chips and circuits that, that can uh, optimally do uh, Bitcoin hashing minimization. And the Bitcoin hashing minimization, that's the way for the Bitcoin network to validate all the transactions? Yeah, yeah. So everyone who participates in the mining of Bitcoin is actually participating in bolstering the network of Bitcoin. Um, so in, in doing this uh, minimizing of the hashing routine, you're kind of uh, um, uh, verifying the ledger of accounts as it stands and, and you're helping bolster the security of the network and, and preventing double spending and stuff like that. And in order to do this mathematical operation, minimizing the hashing, you've got to break a cryptographic code? Yeah, you've got to, you've got to, find, a, um, you've got to find a combination that minimizes um, uh, the, uh, what's known as the SHA-256 algorithm, which is you know, a standard hashing algorithm that's used worldwide in internet banking and all sorts of stuff. And uh, you just got to, you know, find a, a magic number that minimizes that, really. Yeah. And the way you're doing it is you've got a special purpose chip. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, there's no way of mathematically solving this problem. Um, you know, there's no shortcut. You've just got to try all these combinations and see if they work. There's, you know, so it's, it's what's known as a brute force problem. You've got to apply just brute computer force as much as you can. But one, the... the big um, improvement you can do is of course have um, optimized circuitry that only does that problem and nothing else it's not generalized for you know a, a standard computer to you know run your operating system or whatever it's just a chip that just does that problem and does it really fast and really well and so you're part of a team that are building a circuit board to run that chip yeah yes yes that's correct it's called the drill bit system yeah and so the Drillbit system, how much will it go for when you're selling it? Uh, about $100 for our small thumb drive uh, thing, which at present will generate you about 0.1 of a Bitcoin-ish a day, you know, which is about $10 a day or something like that. Um, you know, this will adjust quite a lot over time, um, but we're hoping to have this platform ready you know, in the next couple of weeks and then shipping in October. So, so you're mining, you're basically creating money bitcoins by doing intensive computation and you're selling the ability yes yeah that's correct yeah so why is it better to sell the chips than to just make the money uh well i guess in in terms of owning the chips yourself if we decided to own all those chips we'd be taking on a lot of risk which is of course the risk that um the difficulty becomes quite hard because everyone else in, around the world starts investing this as well. It's hard to know what the status of the worldwide investment into sort of Bitcoin power is. And we don't want to take that risk on. Um, but heaps of people are quite interested in just, you know, buy, buying these small um, systems because, you know, even if it doesn't pay off, you know, your hundred dollars or whatever isn't the, the, the worst thing in the world to lose. And there's lots of hobbyists who just want to have a bit of, you know, hashing power that they can uh, mine some Bitcoin with, regardless of whether it's actually economical. So it's not really about 
an economical kind of proposition. So it's not, it does make sense for us to hold on to all the hashing power. And you had, when you were giving your talk, you had an uh, analogy to gold mining? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, those who make the most money in, in, gold, in, in a gold rush are the ones who sell the shovels. So that's kind of a, the principle be, behind that, right? You know, you don't want to actually be the one, you know, like putting all this money into like setting up a huge gold mine. You want to just be someone providing the tools, you know, that, that it's a lot more lucrative. <laughs> Sounds fun to me. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's kind of why we're doing it, actually. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was James Nichols, mathematician and programmer for Drillbit, a single-purpose computer for mining bitcoins and turning electricity into money. For as long as the bitcoin boom lasts. He's part of a team with Dan Stocks and Jesse Rickardson. You can find out more at www.drillbitsystem.com. I wonder who might gain from faster chips that can crack all known codes. Joffrey Bauche is an economist and assistant secretary at the Association for Good Government. I spoke to him at the RSL. And now part two of Joffrey Bauche discussing money, science or alchemy. There's also what they'd call quasi, like uh, the Federal Reserve of the U.S., which is actually a, a private corporation owned by the banks, but produces currency and membership in the board of the Federal Reserve is by political appointment. That's why I call it quasi. The banks don't appoint, it is, it is a political appointed, those are political appointed positions, but they are accepted as, accepted by the banks who own the Federal Reserve. Weren't the first banknotes in England based on goldsmiths giving promise notes for gold that they had on hand. Yes, uh, that, that you'd say that it began with goldsmith because people didn't want to keep gold in their houses and palaces. It was too big a task. So they would actually turn it over to goldsmiths who would charge him a fee for storage. But then again, uh, you'll, uh, the goldsmiths were pretty, pretty smart. Sometimes some of the unscrupulous goldsmiths would actually shave the very edges of coins melt those shavings to develop new coins. Uh, they were actually earning interest without the, <laughs> the, the depositors knowing. And that's why you have those uh, markings on the edge of coins. It's to prevent that uh, unscrupulous practice of shaving the... Uh, and wasn't it Isaac Newton that introduced a whole lot of those anti-counterfeiting measures when he became in charge of the mint? Well, yeah, he was one of those. But then again, some mice would evolve faster than the people who could develop the bear mouse traps. So what they actually sometimes did was they put the coins in barrels, shook them so they would get gold dust and, and uh, melt them and produce new coins. And that's why they started introducing the weight systems, which Isaac Newton did, very well said. And so we have those standards that we have today in terms of weights of coins and very uh, intricate uh, markings on currencies to prevent counterfeits of those notes. So if money is just because we all agree on it and therefore it's just a, a mental construct, why are we so bad at controlling the value? Why does it go up and down so much? Uh, well, remember, when we say all money is fiat, all money is because we say it is. 
and a lot of it doesn't necessarily have to reflect the real value of goods and services it can be the confidence in it some people can actually spread rumors and say that currency is worthless and if people do believe it the currency will end up being worthless uh, I'll give you a very concrete example back in the Asian crisis of 1997-1998. Philippine rice had better quality and was produced with higher productivity per hectare. Oh, and, but but uh, during the Asian financial crisis where the Indonesian uh, currency, the rupiah, depreciated very sharply. So it ended up that Indonesian rice, despite its lower productivity, and uh, lower quality was dumped on the Philippines because it was just so dirt cheap. So it, there was, it defied the so-called laws of comparative advantage even. So that was an example where plain currencies affected a real good and service, which is, in this case, rice. Some, the, the confidence in currencies is very important. Uh, that determines the laws of supply and demand. There's, when there's more demand for another currency vis-a-vis -vis another, then the currency will, the, the price of the currency vis-a-vis -vis the other currency will rise. Well, the currency with less demand will have a lower for exchange rate. So that's basically why you see those exchange rates. It's one commodity, the currency of one, cur of one country vis-a-vis -vis the currency of another country. Let's compare you. So it's not enough to have a very good product in high demand at really high quality with good prices to make money because it's that's it's not that simple it's the confidence in the currency is also important so it's a lot of it's in the mind doesn't make it more alchemy than science <laughs> that's a good question there is actually a science behind it to be fair uh, there's the equation mv mv equals pq where the money supply times the velocity or the, the, the times it changes hands is equal to the price of the goods and services in the economy and the quantity of goods and services in the economy. Let's put it on, a, to, to, to illustrate, let's put it on a simpler case. If a person makes, say, $120,000 a year, he doesn't receive $120,000 in one go. He receives $10,000 12 times. So the, the number of times he receives $10,000 is velocity. And then he's, with that he's able to buy let, an amount of goods and services he needs at a certain price level. And he has to be very careful with regard to the management of his money supply. Let's say part of his money supply is his ability to issue checks or use his credit card. He would be, if he were living in his means, he would buy based on his ability to repay it with his following payroll. But if he matches his credit, and not just matches his, exceeds it, and is not able to pay the full amount in his next payroll, what happens is he ends up having to pay penalties, which are quite costly. And that will be expressed in the higher price he now has to pay for the goods and services he has to purchase. Or, if he's going to be paying the same price, he will have to settle for less goods and services in the first, with that budget. So, on, as, on, as I illustrated it on the personal level, it also operates on a national economic level. 
So a, a, a national economy produces a certain amount of money which circulates among the hands of its citizens at a certain rate. Now, if it issues too much money, more than the economy can produce its corresponding goods and services, inflation will spike. Or the economy will have to pull back and settle for less goods and services. So those are the choices the community makes. If there's less money circulating because people are spending less on goods and services, isn't that going to lead to deflation, which is a bad thing? Right. So there you see that, well, deflation would be a bad thing in a sense that those who would have produced more will start producing less. When you produce less, you produce less jobs. And when you have less jobs, you naturally have unemployment. And that is, when that, but that happens in an economy when you look at the bigger picture is it all a matter of uh, if are you are we going to treat labor as a commodity or is it something more as a right that's natural as the right of the land to exist it is natural for man to work it's unnatural for man to uh, for humanity to actually be idle in the same way it's unnatural for land to be left idle when someone's living there. When you are marooned in a, in a desert island, you are forced to work to survive. So the natural relationship with man and land is when man is on land, he has to work. So what, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is if we're going to treat labor as a commodity that will be term, determined by other people who have the, cap, the capital to employ them, you will have unemployment, but I'm pushing it to another. I'm pushing the area of the idea of money into another perspective, which is money as capital, money as the deter the, the determinant of being able to generate jobs, being or to cr even create unemployment. That was part two of a series of talks with economist Jeffrey Bolche about the nature of money. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free audiobook from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. 
or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Say, Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. Picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal. And the stop I said, well, bless my soul, you load 16 tons. Why do you get another day older and deeper in debt? Speed it on your car because I can't go. I'm my soul to the company store.